Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Our speaker today has been with us once before, I believe back last year, not long after he and his wife started serving at the camp. They've been there for over a year now. Transplanted up from South Florida, how many years ago? Almost seven. seven. Almost seven. Almost. So that's where we first met Ron and Linda and the uh, family. And I was shocked today to find out that his youngest is 16, but it is true. Mm-hmm. So Ron admits that time passes by. But we're very happy that Ron and Linda are serving at the camp. We're happy to have him over at Fair Lake Bible Chapel to minister to us. So we're going to turn the remainder of our Bible <coughs> time now over to our brother Ron Ward. Well, good morning. It's a delight to be here and to be um, and to be off of the compound, as it were. Um, we've we've named it the compound, Linda. I mean, uh, Han- Hannah has a little job in town, and uh, they call it the compound. So it's good to be off the compound. You know. Uh, we, we do consider ourselves to be very fortunate to be able to serve the Lord in that capacity. We covet your prayers uh, for wisdom, discernment, and understanding. Um, but again, we do consider uh, it's a great privilege to be in the Lord's service. Um, so this morning's meeting, I mentioned it to someone earlier uh, it's it's just amazing how sometimes the Spirit of God just moves through the saints and moves through our fellowship. And uh, this morning, I was challenged to actually to come and to consider one of my favorite characteristics of God, and that's his love. And interestingly, this morning during Lord's Supper, that seemed to be the same theme, the love of God. Um, so I'm grateful that the Lord has directed us in that way. I'd like to introduce maybe the, the, the meeting this morning and from a quote from Jeremiah, a very familiar quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. And God says to his people at the end of that verse, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And, you know, that's the kind of love that God places upon those that belong to him. It's an everlasting love. Um, You remember, I'm sure, those wonderful promises, one of them that the Apostle Paul would articulate in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, he would say, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So that is an everlasting work of salvation that God does to us. It's an everlasting love. It's an everlasting work that God does. Paul would write to uh, Timothy, and he would say, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced he is able to guard what what I've entrusted to him, namely my soul, to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. One more verse in that little book of Jude. That little book of Jude, verse 25. Another wonderful securing promise that the Lord uh, will keep us um, in these great words. 
He says, to the only God and Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Well, why? Why would we uh, affirm those to God? Well, verse 24 said, He is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. Some great promises in the scriptures for us to handle. Scriptures filled with these promises about the eternality of our salvation. The eternality of our salvation. Whom the Lord saves, he secures forever. And that's a great promise the scriptures articulate to us. Of course, Romans chapter 8 is a great chapter of the love of God. And I've titled this little sermon as love that will not let me go a love that will not let me go if you're in Christ if you're in union with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in him there will never be any condemnation great promise in the scriptures well the rest of the chapter it says in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the rest of the chapter goes on to demonstrate um, why that's true, and it culminates at the very end, as Andy read to us so articulately this morning, verses 31 through 39, and those are answering uh, any possible objections to God's love and him not letting go. So turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. And let's look at this. We're going to go very quick through this. Um, We're not going to spend a whole lot of time. Uh, So just put your seatbelt on and uh, travel along these verses with me. Let's look first at verse 31. He starts here and he says, What then shall we say to these things? Now, obviously, what then shall we say to these things? He's anticipating that there are going to be some objections to whether God will continue to love you. He's anticipating there's going to be some objections. And so Paul, he says, well, you know, there are going to be those who will say, well, you know, in spite of everything that we learn, in spite of the scriptures that we've 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 understood about our salvation, maybe we could lose our salvation, couldn't we do something that God wouldn't love us anymore? You know, and there's going to be some who will bring up those objections. And so in these next few verses, Paul, in many ways, he takes he takes every conceivable objection and he answers them as he closes this chapter regarding the love of God. Romans 8, 31, it says, if God is for us, Who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who could be successful in overturning God's plan? Can anyone? Well, the answer, of course, we all know that, is there is no one more powerful than the God we serve. He's almighty. He's all-powerful. There is no one that can do that. And And if God has determined, as we already read in chapter 8, verse 1, If God has determined that we are in a 
no condemnation status with him by faith in Christ, who can overturn that? Can anyone overturn that? That no condemnation status, by the way, is eternal. It's eternal and no one can alter it. And Paul's going to address that here in these next few verses. You know, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, the apostle would write, he would write, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. God is greater than anything he's created. God, there is no one who can overturn it. And since God is infinite in his power, it's utterly impossible to alter or thwart in any way his will. In uh, Deuteronomy, we read this. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like unto you, O people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, who is the sword of your excellency. So God's speaking to Israel, and he's saying, happy are you, because God is your Lord, because he will save you. And, you know, just in the same way, we read in Jeremiah, just in the same way God stood for his people Israel, he stands for the church today. And Paul's going to make that grand and glorious statement in verse 41. If God is for us, who can be against us? And of course, that means that who can successfully be against us? Can anyone remove you from a no condemnation status? Now, the apostle is, is anticipating objections, and he says, well, you know, someone might suggest that there are maybe some persons could change that status. Maybe some people could, could change that status. So he starts with this. He starts with God. And the first thing he says is, will God change his mind? Will God change his mind about loving you? Will God change his mind? Well, verse 31 says, God is for us. And verse 32, look at verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And in other words, if he gave us the greatest gift of all to save us, won't he give us the lesser gift to keep us? If he gave us the greatest gift, won't he give us the lesser gift? And so God has predetermined to love us before the foundation of the world. Scriptures teach us. He's predetermined to love us before the foundation of the world. To, to love us, he's, he's granted salvation through the sacrifice of his son, which obviously is his greatest gift, wasn't it? It's his greatest gift. And he will do whatever it takes that to those who belong to him to hang on to us. He will not let anything take us away. And the Lord Jesus, in John chapter 10, he would illustrate it by saying this. In John chapter 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, 
and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says, I and the Father are one. And somebody might suggest, well, maybe not persons, but, well, maybe Satan can do it. Maybe the devil can cause you to lose your salvation. And uh, maybe Satan can cause God to let go of you. And then verse 33, in anticipation of that objection, he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Of course, the answer is going to be, well, Satan can, because he's known as what? He's the accuser, is he not? He's the accuser, and he's the accuser of the brethren. But the fact of the matter is, he's very unsuccessful, because, not, he's, because God is greater than him. Look at verse 34. Satan may be the one who condemns us, but Christ Jesus is he who died, it says there, who was raised and is at the right hand of God, and he also intercedes for us. He's holding on to you. He's holding on to us. So God will not let go of his own because he's predetermined that we should be his forever, and he is for us. Satan can't somehow wrestle us out of the hands of God because God will not let it happen. He will not let it happen. He's given us that greater gift, and he will keep us, and he will do the lesser to hold on to us. So Christ won't let us go either. Well, maybe we can offend the Lord Jesus somehow. Maybe he'll just say, well, God, you know, they're not worth it. But he won't. He won't let go of us. The fact of the matter is he already died for us as we celebrated this morning. He rose for us. And now he's seated at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. So it's not possible that we should be taken from the hand of God. There's not a person or persons who can cause us to lose our salvation. Then we come over here to verse 35, and we come to a, a different matter. We know persons can't take us out. Satan can't take us out. Christ will not let us go. God will not let us go. But what about circumstances? How, how about circumstances? If, if persons can't cause us to lose our salvation, if, if we can't do it ourselves, if other people can't do it, if, if God won't let go of us, if Satan can't, Caused it to happen if Christ won't because he's ever living to intercede. Well, maybe it's possible that some circumstances can do it. Look at verse 35. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? And this is from our standpoint. What can separate us from the love of Christ? And by the way, some of your translations might say who. I think what is a better translation, and they can be interchanged, those, that word. It can say who or what, but just for sake of that. The context makes this better than who, although the Greek could go either way. Can we stand the pressure without forsaking Christ? And Paul says, yes. Yes, absolutely. There isn't anything that can separate us from the love of Christ. And when we look at this in verse 35... 
Um, Though this implies in many ways our love for him, I think it most notably speaks about his love for us. And in verse 37, he says, him who loved us, verse 39, it says the love of God. And obviously in that context, it's the love that he has for us. You know, it's important for us to love God. But it's more important that he loves us. So those verses would lead us to believe that the primary issue here is his love for us. And certainly it brings in the thought our love for him. Is there anything that can cause us to lose our love for him and therefore have him cease or stop loving us? Um, Turn with me, if you would. We're going to look at a passage in John chapter 13. And you remember this very, probably very clear in John chapter 13. And it's a, it's a wonderful statement um, in John 13, 1, you know, there was the, the feast of the Passover was about to happen. And, you know, Jesus was very much aware that he was going to die. He knew the time was coming. And it says at the end of verse 1, it says this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And the Greek words there are eistilos, eistilos. And that means to the max. It's the ultimate. He loved them perfectly to the max. He, he, he loved them supremely. And he loved them completely. And he loved them ultimately. He loved them to the end. And what that's saying is that God loves his own who are in the world to the complete extent of his capability of loving. And that's an amazing thing to even think about. That, you know, we... We struggle, I don't know about you, we struggle with our love, and our love is fickle, isn't it? But not God's love. God's love is not fickle. God's love is fixed. And when he loves you, it's fixed. So he he loves his own in the world to the max, to the fullness of the capacity that he has to love. And I might add that it has nothing to do Um, whether we're lovable or not. It's not up to us because, you know, in John chapter 13, there was hardly a time when the disciples were less lovely or less lovable. They were less lovable than at, at, at that very moment. They were, think about it, they were in the upper room. Um, it was the night that Judas was going to betray the Lord Jesus they were having that final supper, the last supper, the Passover meal. And Judas, he was about to be dismissed, and he was going to leave that gathering, and he was going to go and sell the Lord Jesus out. And the next day, the Lord Jesus knew that he would be captive and ultimately crucified. So that all of that's going on in the room. All of that's in the room. Lord Jesus is very much aware of it. But the disciples, they were not only not interested in, in what was going on with regard to the Lord Jesus and, 
And, and they were more concerned about themselves, but, but they were actually demonstrating their own carnality by being in the middle of a debate about which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. So here we got all this going on. The Lord's about ready to be crucified. And, and it seemed that, that, and by the way, that was one of their constant, uh, arguments, one, a subject for them. Who was going to be the greatest? You know, Jesus had just told them that he was going to die. He had told them what was coming. And they literally let it run off of their back like water on a duck. And they were indifferent to that whole scenario, as it were. And that unbelievably horrible sin-bearing, which the Lord was anticipating, it never even crossed their minds. There was no compassion. They were just concerned about who was going to be great in the kingdom. And uh, um, it isn't, isn't it wonderful, though, that the Scripture chooses that very moment, that very epic in time, uh, to tell us that Jesus would love them to the max. In that room, Jesus would love them to the max. And the bottom line is this. His love for us is an eternal love. He set it upon us. And it's never due to anything worthy in us or anything we've achieved. And consequently, it wasn't gained by us. And guess what? You can't lose it. When God's holding on to you, you ain't getting away. And that's what the apostle is trying to articulate here. I said all of that to say that there's nothing to indicate that the disciples were worth loving at that moment, but the love of God is not dependent upon how we act in any given circumstance. It's an unending love, and we mentioned that a little bit earlier today. You know, at that time, he loved them to the very max. That is just a, it's a, it's a profound truth. And the question is then, back to Romans 8, back to Romans 8, The question is then, is there anything that can separate us from him loving us to the max? He loves us to the fullest extent that it's possible for him to love his creatures to the fullest extent. And he cannot love any creature more than he loves his own. He loves us the max. I mean, just let that settle in how you think about your relationship with him. Is there anything, any circumstance that can come in our lives and affect us in such a way as to cause us to the forfeiture of that love? Is there anything that could cause us the forfeiture of that love? And the answer is here in verse 35. Is it tribulation? Can tribulation do it? Is it distress? Is it persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Can any of those things cause you? To fall away from God's love? Look at that list on your own, but suffice it to say, these are very difficult circumstances. These are difficult circumstances. And what about all that? Can it do it? Is, it, is that powerful enough? Is that, is that catalog of, of problems, that catalog of circumstances, is that powerful enough to destroy true faith? Well, We know one thing, it will destroy an illegitimate faith, won't it? It will destroy an illegitimate faith. Remember, 
Remember the parable that the Lord Jesus would speak um, about the soil and the, and the seeds and how he would he talked about the seed that went into the stony ground and and it came up for a little while. But as soon as there was persecution, what happened? It died and, and it never bore any fruit. And we know false faith can be destroyed by persecution. False faith, according to the rest of that parable and and that thorny, weedy ground that can destroy your faith, false faith, just by the love of the world, by the love of riches, which is actually a form of temptation. But the question is, can the real stuff, can real true faith, genuine salvation be devastated by those things? Can they drive us to doubt if we're genuinely God's? Can they drive us to sin? Can they drive us to the rejection of Jesus and the abandonment of our faith? When we struggle with those things, does he stop loving us? Does he stop loving us? Well, the fact of the matter is no. Look at verse 36. In verse 36, he says, we expect those things. When you got saved, what did you expect? We expect those things, verse 36 is going to tell us. This stuff is supposed to come because he says, just as it is written. Don't be surprised when those things come. I mean, Jesus said it, didn't he? He said, in this world you shall have, you know what the other word is? Tribulation. In this world you shall have, in John chapter 16, he says, they're going to take you prisoner. Well, I don't know that you guys have ever experienced that, but there are those who do experience that. They're going to take you prisoner. They're going to bring you before the council. They're going to even take your life. So there are those circumstances that are very difficult for people. But will that take them out of the grasp of the love of God? This is what it says, and Paul quotes from Psalm 44 too. For thy sake... We are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And listen to this. If that drives someone to reject Christ, they were never his in the first place. They went out, it says in 1 John, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might be made manifest that they were not of us. 1 John 2.19. That's why people fall away. Not because there's lost, not because God let them go, but they never were of, of us. Back to verse 36. For thy sake, and by the way, for thy sake expresses a willingness. God's people, for God's sake, Christ's own for his sake are willing to suffer. Not avoid it. We're willing to. I'm not saying, you know, look for it, but expect it. And stop living your little comfortable, soft cushion life. Get out there and serve the Lord. In Luke chapter 9, it says this. As they were going along the road, someone said to the Lord Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. You remember that? Luke chapter 9. And Jesus says to him, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you think about it. You got a, 
you got someone, a potential disciple, you know, and he's like, I, I'm impressed with you. I, I think I want to follow you, you know. And, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to say, well, yeah, OK, come on. I'm heading for a kingdom and I got power and I got all this stuff. That's what you're expected to say. Right. But that's not what the Lord Jesus says. He says, well, I probably ought to tell you I'm homeless and don't expect a whole lot. Don't expect a whole expect some suffering. Expect hard work. OK, expect it. And this is real basic discipleship. He offers us in this world. The Lord Jesus offers us in this world. Guess what he offers us? Persecution, tribulation, suffering, alien. And you want to know what? You know why he offers us? Because he did it. He did it for us. He dealt with these things. It is a willingness that Christians have a willingness to go all the way. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? Listen to Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. It says this. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. You know, when one comes to Christ acknowledging a sacrifice, a willingness to suffer, the true Christians face these things. They don't run from them. They face these things. They don't abandon their salvation. And it's just part of it. True believers persevere. True believers persevere. And Paul says in verse 37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly what? Conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us and does not let us go. Does not let us go. He loves us and he does not let us go. In all our trials, all our persecutions, these temptations, these, these, the, the distress, the persecution, the famine. I mean, I look in this room and I look at my own life. I don't know about that. I'm not dealing with most of that. But there are those temptations. There are those things in my life, right, that I have to deal with. But in all those things, in the peril and the sword and all of that, we don't, the Christian doesn't just kind of get by. The Apostle Paul, he says we're triumphant. We're victorious. Did you know that? Do you know that? We're triumphant. We're, we're, the trials, they work to a greater good. Listen to this. Those kind of trials in our lives, here's what they do. And I'm just telling you this. Because if you want to be like this, deal with some of these trials. Put your place, put yourself in a place where you're dealing with this. Because they're going to do some things to you. First, they're going to make you humble. Then they're going to drive you to God. And do you know when trials and temptations come into someone's life, it's going to do one, it's going to drive you one way or the other. To the true believer, you're gonna, you're gonna, it's gonna drive you to God. To the false hope, it's gonna drive you away. It's gonna drive you away. It's gonna drive us to God. But you know what I think is so wonderful? Trials, temptations, distresses, all of those things, they have the ability to expose us to a greater grace. Do you want more grace? Huh? 
then you want more grace, then, then allow God to work through you a greater grace. They're going to break our self-confidence and, and ultimately they're going to make us powerful. And they enable us to strengthen others as well. So there's some great benefits to these trials and temptations. In all these things that come, we're going to overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us because his love for us will never be broken. And in that love, he provides a sustaining faith. Where does your faith come from? Did you, like, make it up yourself? Where does faith come from? It comes from above. He's the one that gives you that sustaining faith, right? It comes from above. All these things, we're overwhelmingly... Our faith will not die. And, you know, yeah. We're going to have our moments of doubt. I don't know about you, but I do too. You know, sometime in the, on the compound, and I've said to Linda multiple times on the compound, just kidding, at the camp, what are we doing here? You know, are we making any, what are we doing here? And then the Lord, then Linda says, we're serving the Lord, right? Not that I'm dealing with tribulations and all that. Well, it is summertime. Anyway, Linda's the one that has to deal with the tribulation. She's got me. You know, our faith will not die because the Lord grants us a sustained faith. He grants us a sustained faith. And so he says here in verse 38, summing it up, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, principalities, the things present, things to come, the powers, the height, the depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. I'm persuaded. Are you persuaded? Are you persuaded? Do you know how I know someone's persuaded that nothing's going to separate us from the love of God? Because they live like it. Because they live in, they live victoriously. I'm not saying they win everything, but they live victoriously. This is a confident declaration, the Apostle Paul, of a Holy Spirit-inspired man. I'm confident of this thing. I have a settled conclusion, and I'm telling you this. None of these things are going to separate me from the love of God. Well, what about life? You know, life's dangerous. Well, that, well that's, can I have a few more minutes? Okay. What about life's dangers? The difficulties, the temptations, you know, life's with all its troubles, you know. So what the apostle is saying here is that there's no state of being, death or life, that'll separate you from the love of, of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we read, all things belong to you. The apostle Paul would write to the church of Corinth. He'd say, all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word or life or death, all things Present, all things to come, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. I'm going to tell you what, you're just all wrapped up in a bundle of love when you think about that. You're just covered and covered and covered. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the, the, the tabernacle and, and all of the coverings that they had, the layers of coverings that they had. Anyway. There's no sphere in which you could possibly exist, and there's no state of being which you could possibly exist, which would be outside the love of God. 
nor are there any personalities that could separate you. Paul here, he says angels, no angels. And when he's talking about angels here, he's probably talking about good angels, right? And not that they would, but he says it's not even possible that a good angel could cause you to be separated from the love of... And then he says principalities. Obviously, he's talking about about bad angels, about fallen angels, about Satan. And he illustrates that in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians 1. No holy angel, no demon can cause you to be separated. And that's to say that there's not, there is not a state of being in which you could be separated from God. There's no supernatural. There's no angelic. There's no good. There's no evil. There's no state of being that can ever alter your eternal glory in the love of Christ. Nor things present, he says, nor things to come. There's nothing. Here and now, there's nothing in the present age. There's nothing in the the present moment. There's nothing in the future, any future age. And he's covering every base, every argument that you could possibly bring up and say, well, maybe God really doesn't love me. Maybe God really doesn't love me. And he says, and then he adds, no powers. And when used in the plural there, the idea of powers, it frequently refers to miracles. There's no, there, there's no mighty work, no mighty power, no supernatural power that could cause you to lose your salvation. I like this too. And he kind of brings it. And he goes, and then there's, there's no height. And this is an interesting word. What does that mean? It's an astrological term, the word for height here. It's a term, and it's used to describe the orbit of a star at its apex, at its apex of of the orbit. When a star is at its zenith, when it's reached its fullness, it's when it's reached its full, the highest point that you could possibly imagine. No height. And then, then he uses the word bathos, which means depth. And that's the other way. And that term is used to describe a star at its lowest point of orbit. Do you get it? No star at the highest. There's nothing to the extreme and, and infinite point of the highest heaven, the extreme and infinite point of the lowest heaven, and there's nothing anywhere from one heaven to the other that can separate you from the love of Christ. It's amazing to think about that. No state of being. No time, no eternity, no created being, no holy angel, evil angel, no dimension of time, no eternity, no source of power. There's no place in the endless universe uh, that can sever you from Christ. Nothing in this life, nothing in death. There's nothing. He touched basically every area that he could possibly take, except for somebody still might have an argument. And... He says, well, just in case someone might say, oh, well, except, he says, nor any other created thing. That covers everything. Nothing. There's no exceptions. None shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And I just want you to understand this. The love of God toward us is bound up It's all bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ. His love for me is bound up in the Lord Jesus. And the reason God has set his eternal love on us is because he has covered us with the righteousness of Christ so that 
His love for us, it's not conditioned on what we are. You're covered. The righteousness of Christ, it's conditioned on who Christ is. You understand that? That's a great truth. And the fact of the matter is that can't change. Who Christ is is unalterable. Right? It's unalterable. And that brings us all the way back to where we started in Jeremiah chapter 31, where it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Isn't it awesome to be in the embrace of an eternal God who loves you? And did what it needed, did what he needed to do to get you and keep you. Father, we thank you so much for the love that you show us. We thank you for a love that will not let me go. You know, we live in frail, um, broken cisterns we are, broken bowls we are. And yet... You continue to draw us to you. You continue to repair us. You continue in your work toward us and sanctifying and keeping us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the greatest expression of your gift toward us, a love that's unalterable. We thank you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.